So I invite you to open up your Bibles to Psalm 104. So Psalm 104, as we continue to look at a different psalm uh, throughout the summer. Uh, last week we looked at Psalm 103, today Psalm 104. Um, you know, many have said that Psalm 103 and 104 form, a, 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 they seem to be a pair of, of twin psalms in many ways, and, and that makes sense that both Psalm 103 and Psalm 104 that they begin and end with, with the same statement, with the same uh, verse. It is, bless the Lord, O my soul, how they begin and how they end. And yet, what happens in between the beginning and the end in each psalm is quite different. We know from Psalm 103, it's a psalm of David. Um, we see that in the title. And David is preaching to himself, to his own soul, uh, to, 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 to praise and to bless God as his Redeemer King, Psalm 104, who stands to reason may very well also be by David, but we're not sure. Seems like it is. There, the psalmist once again cries out to his own soul to praise and bless God as his creator king, as the sovereign creator, sustainer, and provider. So put another way, Psalm 103 reminds us of God's love, compassion, mercy, forgiveness, and grace Psalm 104 reminds us of God's greatness and glory and of our deep dependence on him as our creator and as our provider and our sustainer. Theologian John Stott says, Psalms 103 and 104 form a perfect pair and illustrate the balance of the Bible. Both begin and end with the words, praise the Lord or bless the Lord, O my soul, Psalm 103 goes on to tell of the goodness of God in salvation. Psalm 104, of the greatness of God in creation. Psalm 103 depicts God as the Father with His children. Psalm 104, as the Creator with His creatures. Psalm 103 catalogs His benefits. Remember from last week, forget not all His benefits. You know, count our, count our mercies one by one so we not forget what the Lord has done. Psalm 104 catalogs His works. Or as the Shorter Catechism, question 8, instructs us, God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. And that's what we see. We see God's works of creation and providence laid out for us, cataloged for us in Psalm 104. Question number 9 of the Shorter Catechism asks, well, what is the work of creation? The work of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. And we're going to see that in Psalm 104. Question 11 asks, what are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And we also see that in Psalm 104. We see, we'll see God's works of creation and providence all throughout. And so as we read Psalm 104 in just a few moments, listen to how the psalmist calls us to open our eyes and to see and to notice creation. But not just for the sole purpose of, of merely seeing, oh wow, the creation is wonderful and it's grand and it's beautiful. The psalmist wants us to go beyond seeing the grandeur and the beauty in the wonder of creation and go further and connect that to the, the grandeur and the wonder and the greatness of our God. That that's the purpose that we would meditate and reflect and worship and delight in the creator 
And so hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. I'll begin reading Psalm 104, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun knows its time for setting. You make darkness and it is night, when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. And so we're going to look at this psalm under three headings. First, we'll see God as our creator. Second, as our provider and sustainer. And then thirdly, what is our response to our creator and provider God? So our creator, our provider and sustainer, and then our response. And so first, our creator. Look at verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. 
O Lord my God, you are very great. And so here we see this phrase that begins and ends Psalms 103 and 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And then the psalmist immediately says, he declares that God is very great. He's going to go on to to tell his own soul, his own heart, all that is within him of God's greatness. He's going to do this by, by cataloging God's works of creation and providence. And so you see that in the the second part of verse 1, that you are clothed with splendor and majesty. Right? God, who is invisible, is clothed with splendor and majesty. So think about that statement. You know, often clothing in the Bible is used as, as a metaphor or illustration to tell us about someone or something's character and nature, their attributes. Here in verse 1, the psalmist says that God is majestic. He's great. He's glorious. He's clothed in splendor and majesty. The Protestant reformer John Calvin says, As God irradiates the whole world by his splendor, this is the garment in which he, who is hidden in himself, appears in a manner visible to us. as, As one pastor put it, that splendor and majesty... Or God's suit. That as we see God's splendor and majesty in creation, it's telling us something about the Creator who made it. That the greatness that we see in creation tells us that the God who made this great creation must be greater still. Pastor Ligon Duncan says the psalmist is telling you that when you reflect on the invisible God's creation of this visible world, it leads you back to the praise of the invisible God. You have never seen God, but you have seen his garments. They are called creation, and in the earth and in the heavens and in the oceans, we see the display of his glory. And as we read, as we work our way through Psalm 104, the psalmist is going to flesh this out for us. Now, some scholars, like Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner, see all six of the days of creation from Genesis 1 here in Psalm 104. I can kind of see them, um, although days 5 and 6 seem to be kind of, they go back and forth between those two, but I can see very clearly references to day 1, day 2, and day 3 of creation from Genesis 1 in this first section of Psalm 104. And so first, there's a reference to day 1 of creation. So look at the, the end of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. So remember, right, in the Bible, clothes often describes one character, one's character, one's nature. And God has clothed himself with light as a garment. And we know that that's appropriate because God is light. 1 John 1.5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So the splendor, the majesty, the greatness of God is revealed in his great works, including his work of creation. So again, I think that that Psalm 104 verse 2, it does correspond to, refers to, back to the first day of creation in Genesis chapter 1. So let's go back there. Look at Genesis 1 verses 3 to 5. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Now, go back to Psalm 104, verse 1. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, 
covering yourself with light as with a garment. Commentator Alan Ross says, clothing is again used to reveal the true nature of the Lord. He is light. Light in the Bible is symbolic of many things, including holiness, understanding, joy, and life itself. The Lord is everything that light is. That's what 1 John 1.5 tells us. God is light. And according to this verse, it is he who covered himself with light. Because light is vital to life, the one who is the true light created light first. But then in Psalm 104, verses 2 to 4, we see a reference to day 2 of creation. The psalmist says, Stretching out the heavens like a tent, he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters, he makes the clouds his chariot, he rides on the wings of the wind, he makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. And so what we see here, our creator God makes his palace in the heavens. And he is a great king who rides on his chariot, rides on the clouds, and the winds and the lightning are his messengers. And the language here is poetic because this is a psalm, it, it is poetry, but, but I, I think that the message is, is unmistakable, isn't it? The point is that God is completely utterly sovereign overall, perhaps in such a way that we really can't wrap our minds around, but everything that God has made in the heavens above and on the earth below stands ready to serve him, to do his will. And notice that phrase in verse 2, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. Keep that in mind. Listen to this description of the day two of creation in Genesis 1, verses 6 to 8. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And notice that in Genesis 1 and in Psalm 104, notice the ease at which our sovereign God stretches out the heavens like a tent. Again, all of this pointing to his sovereignty, his sovereign majesty, his power as our creator God. And then next in Psalm 104, verses 5 to 9, we see a reference to day 3 of creation. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. And so notice, God does all of this. God sets the earth on its foundations. That God uh, puts the waters in the oceans, that God raises the mountains, that God lowers the valleys, that God's the one who sets the boundary so they may not pass. With that in mind, listen to what we read in Genesis 1, verses 9 and 10. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw it, and it was good. And in Genesis 1, this happens by the word of God's power. God said, and the waters were gathered together, the mountains were raised, the valleys were lowered. In Psalm 104, it's at God's rebuke. Again, the word of his power, that the waters fled. See, in both accounts, one thing is clear. 
The separation of the waters from the land is brought about by God's command, by the word of his power, that God speaks and the waters and the mountains, the land, the creation obeys their creator. Again, he's clothed with splendor and majesty. And notice verse 9, you set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. That God sets many boundaries puts many principles and many truths in place to to govern and to sustain his creation. One pastor put it this way, we don't live in a completely random, chaotic world, but one with set boundaries. And they're put in place by God. Our personal creator has filled the world with principles of physics, mathematics, chemistry, biology, and the like. Because of this, we have aerodynamics, electricity, medicine, all harnessing a host of givens, and limitations embedded in creation that have made civilization possible and thank God for them all. And so students, as we begin back to school, mathematics, chemistry, biology, they're given to us by God and we should be thankful for them. Thankful for the truth that we, the truths that we find there. You know, especially, especially math, be very thankful for math. In particular, I think algebra and calculus, you don't have to be as thankful for geometry if you ask me, but I believe that you know, they're all great tools to use, but math in particular given to us is a great gift for us to enjoy, so enjoy it. But the psalmist calls us to look at and to notice creation, but not simply, not simply just to appreciate creation's beauty and grandeur. Not simply to appreciate the order and the intricacies and the principles and the truth and the science of creation, but to look at and notice creation for the purpose of drawing a line back to our Creator and meditating on and reflecting on and worshiping and delighting in God, our Creator. Now, that's the first section of this psalm. The second section focuses more on God as our provider and sustainer. Okay, that first, the first nine verses, all about God as Creator. But don't miss this. It's not as if God created everything and He set boundaries in place, He set up principles, and then He steps away and just lets it go, and not involved. What we see in the middle section of Psalm 104 is that God is still very much engaged, very much involved with his creation, day after day, very much involved in your life and my life. You see, as I read portions of this next section, notice how the verb tenses are going to change. What we looked at so far, the first nine verses, we've seen mostly past tense verbs, right, referring to God's work of creation. Days 1, 2, and 3 from Genesis 1. However, in this second section, what we see are mostly present tense verbs. And I think that's intentional. That the psalmist is reminding us that God is still very much actively engaged and involved in sustaining his creation, in providing for us and providing for you day after day after day. So put another way, our God is not like the the, the clockmaker who makes the clock, winds it up, puts it on the shelf, and then steps away to let it just wind down on its own. And and praise God that that's true. Praise God that he still is providing for us and sustaining us. Praise him for his works of providence, which powerfully preserve and govern all his creatures and all their actions, including us and all of our actions. So listen to how God provides for and sustains his creatures by providing the most basic of needs, providing the water that we need. 
Look at verses 10 to 13. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. Right? You travel around the world. You travel around even our state. And where there's water, there's going to be life. Where there's not water, there's not going to be life. Do you see the point that the psalmist is making? That it's God and only God who provides the water that we need. Look at verse 14. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth. See, God is the one who does this. I mean, it's something that, you know, that, that my, my dad, you know, who, who was a farmer for many years, he, he knows this. I heard him remind me of this all the time, talking about it. He would talk about people living in places like Houston. He would say, you know, son, there's going to be a time coming when those people in those big cities, you know, they're, just, they're going to starve to death, he said, because they don't know how to, how, how, they, don't, they, don't, they don't understand where, really where food comes from. They just go to the grocery store and they just, they just buy it. And they think it's always going to be there for them. And, and I, you know what, guys, I, I've seen that, not just of you, but of me too, living here, that, you know, we, we tend to think and live life like we can always just go to H-E-B and we're always going to be able to get what we want. Not just what we need, but what we want until every so often when the hurricane comes or the flood comes or a pandemic happens and we go into H-E-B and we see those shelves are empty or they're sparse or there's shortage of Topo Chico or whatever it is. And we're like, we begin not only to be frustrated, but we begin to be worried and think, you know, what in the world's happening? And I think part of that's because we realize in those times that we are not self-sustaining. We are dependent creatures, dependent on our God. The psalmist is later going to say, God is the one who opens his hand. And then we gather up what he gives us. We put it into our mouths. We'll get more to that later. But look at verse 15. And wine to gladden the heart of man oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So a word here, we all know that wine and alcohol can be abused. However, notice what the Bible says here in other places, it also can be a blessing and a gift from our good God when used properly and responsibly in moderation. But the late pastor James Montgomery Boyce says, with human beings, God is lavish. These were the three life staples of people living in the ancient Near East. Wine was imported where water was usually unsafe. Oil was applied to the skin in a climate where the sun dried it out in short order. And bread was the food that kept most people alive. And God opens his hand and he provides for his people. Now in the next few verses, the psalmist gives us more examples of how God provides water for the trees. And how God provides trees for the birds. And how God provides mountains and rocks for, for, for the goats and the rock badgers. So look at verses 16 to 18. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nest. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. See, 
you understand the point that the psalmist is making? Each and every one of God's creatures has exactly what it needs. And why? Because God provided it for them. And God continues to provide it for them, continues to sustain things for them. Now, next in Psalm 104, we see a reference to day four of creation from Genesis 1, whenever God created the sun and the moon. So look at verses 19 to 23. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. So, I mean, several things to notice here, but the first is, see, the lions hunt, but do you notice who gives them their food? It's God. I mean, I mean, God's made them in such a way that they are, you know, incredibly gifted hunters, but it's still, it's not just they hunt, yes, but God is the one who has to provide for them, has to give them their food. So the psalmist's point is the animals, the lions, others, and people, we all need God to create, sustain, and govern the sun and the moon. To, to sustain and, and maintain day and night to order our lives, to meet our needs, to know when to work, to know when to hunt, to know when to sleep. And we are a mess without this ordering. Right? I mean, I, I've had friends who were transferred to Alaska for work. And, you know, it's, I mean, Alaska is wonderful to visit. It's fascinating to see, you know, the days whenever the sun doesn't even set. Um, but it's very different living up there. Right? And you live up there for a while unless you've got the blackout shades where you can pretend it's night. It, the ordering of your life, is, it's messy. And it's a challenge. On the days when the sun doesn't really rise um, up there, you, you've got to have the special lamps to sit under so that you can continue to focus, continue to function. Right? And so why does the psalmist remind himself and remind us of all this stuff? Psalm 104, verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. The psalmist wants us to realize the scope and the complexity and the wonder of creation, and he wants us to make the connection with the creator. Right? The psalmist's point is, if creation is this great, then God, our creator, must be so much greater and so much more worthy of praise that the greatness of God's creation and his sustaining providence is intended to lead the psalmist and lead us straight to the greatness of God. That it's meant to, to, to stir our hearts to worship God with joy and gratitude. Right? And so, so remember this the next time you see you know, a beautiful sunset. Remember this the next time you stand beside the ocean, the next time you're driving through or hiking in the mountains. It's not... It's not it's not enough just to, to notice the beauty. Everyone notices the beauty. Everyone notices the grandeur. That what God's word calls the people of God to do is to go further and to let that grandeur and that beauty, the stunning scenes that we see in nature, remind us that our God is that much more great, that much more stunning and marvelous and majestic. How, O oh Lord, how manifold are your works. Look, look at verse uh, 24 to 26. In wisdom 
have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. Okay, so I'm, I'm not sure what Leviathan refers to. Seems like it's a big sea creature. So he's talking about creatures in the sea that are small and great. And the point is that God made them all. Right? I mean, I've read that there are 5,000 known species of sponges on the ocean's floor. Who knew? God did, because in wisdom, God made them all. That there are 90 different species of whales. In wisdom, God made them all. You know, just to add a, a fun fact, apparently there are over 300,000 species of beetles. In wisdom, God made them all. And God did not merely make them all. God continues to provide for them. God continues to sustain them. Look again at verses, look now at verses 27 and 28. And these are two verses that are worth memorizing. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. See, everything and everyone is dependent on God to open his hand. And to, and to give us, to provide for us the food that we need to fill our mouths. The livestock in the fields, the birds in the air, the wild goats on the mountains, the great and the small sea creatures, every person on the planet is dependent on God's care and provision. Right? Not one of us can make an apple. But God must make the tree bear fruit. Right? We all look to God to give us our food, to provide for us, and God graciously opens his hand and we're filled with good things. In creation, in God's works of, of providence, are meant to remind us of what a good and generous and great God we have. But how often do we think about that? You know, you look at verses 27 and 28 of Psalm 104. I mean, how often do our prayers reflect that we know and that we trust and that we're living in light of this psalm? I mean, my guess is that most of us regularly pray before we eat, maybe not every time, but most of the time, you know, we pray before we eat. And what if instead of just going through the ritual, if we actually stop to think about how we really are utterly dependent upon our creator and provider and sustainer, our God, to open his hand and to give us the food that we need. Look at verses 29 and 30. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. And so it's fascinating that, look, look at verse 29, it states the truth in pretty plain terms, right? When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. Last week in Psalm 103, we, we, saw, we were reminded that we are dust. And our days are like the grass, that we flourish like the flowers of the field for a time, for a season. And then the wind passes over it, and it's gone, to be remembered no more. And the psalmist here reminds us of that yet again. And so notice in verse 30, that word that's translated spirit, it's actually the same word translated breath in verse 29. And so verse 30, when you send forth your spirit or send forth your breath, they are created, and so that certainly calls to mind, I think, 
what we read in Genesis 2 about God breathing, breathing his breath in the breath of life into the nostrils of, of the man that he had formed out of the dust with our first parent, our first father, Adam. But you see, looking at 29 and 30 together, there's not a creature on the planet and not one of us in this sanctuary who can live one moment longer than God allows us to live. Right? I, I, if you were here at, for, at the announcements at the beginning of the service, you know, I, I told you about this sad situation about a 13-year-old grandson of one of our church members. 13 years old, one week healthy, the next week sick, he never got better. That we are frail, weak, dependent, and transitory creatures. We are utterly dependent upon God for everything, including our next breath. So think about that. Think about your life. Think about your perspective. Think about the things that really matter to you. Think about what should really matter to you. Think about your prayers. How often does your life, in your perspective, in your priorities, your prayers, the battles you choose to fight, think about how often they reflect that you know and that you believe and that you're living in light of the truths that we see here in Psalm 103 and Psalm 104. So God's our creator. He's our provider and our sustainer. And then lastly, what's our response to be? Look at verses 31 and 32. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles. Who touches the mountains and they smoke. See, in light of all the psalmist has said, said to his own heart, remember he's preaching to himself, bless the Lord, O my soul. His response, which should be our response, is that he desires above all else that the glory of the Lord would endure forever. That his consideration of all that God has done in his works of creation and providence is to, to bless the Lord, to praise the Lord, and he wants the glory of the Lord to endure forever. Pastor Richard Phillips says, we self-centeredly assume that the earth exists for our pleasure, whereas the psalmist insists that its first priority is to serve the glory and pleasure of God. With this in mind, having shown how God's work of creation glorifies his wisdom, goodness, and power, the psalmist expresses his most fervent desire for this glory to endure forever. And you see this desire more in verse 33. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. And then we have these last two verses, 34 and 35. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. So to me, verse 34 lets us know the psalmist knows his own sin. He knows that it's possible that, that maybe he is offer, he's unworthy to praise and worship the Lord. And then in verse 35, we're reminded that the earth is fallen. That apart from God's saving grace in Christ that mankind are dead in their trespasses and sins. Apart from God's saving grace, we are objects of God's just and holy and righteous wrath. But when God saves us by his grace, and our eyes are open to see our sin for what it is, and to see the Savior, to see Christ for who he is, and, and to trust and to receive and rest on the finished work of Christ, 
speaking of his perfect, sinless, righteous life, his atoning, sufficient death on the cross, and his glorious, victorious resurrection from the grave, then we can be certain that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts are and always will be pleasing to the Lord in Christ Jesus. So one last quote from Pastor Richard Phillips. Here we discover the true essence of worship. As the psalmist concerns himself not with what he will get out of worship, but rather with what God will think of his praise, what good news it is for the believer to learn that our praises are acceptable to God when offered through the mediation of his Son. Especially when we worship according to the Word of God, redeemed believers may have the confident joy of knowing that our worship is pleasing to God. Hebrews 13:15 says of Jesus, Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. And remember, that's that Psalm 103 and 104 begin and end with, bless the Lord, O my soul. That we're meant to, to draw a straight line from the greatness of creation right, to the greatness of our God who's, who's so much greater than, than his creation. In just a few moments, we're, we're going to close the service by singing a hymn, which I think in many ways provides a wonderful summary of these truths that we've been learning from Psalm 104. It's a familiar hymn to many of us. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all thy works thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. And when I think that God, his Son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, Lord, we love your word. We're so thankful for it. Your God-breathed word, it's authoritative, it's sufficient. Lord, please impress the truths that we've learned today from Psalm 104 upon our hearts. Lord, help us to, to look and to see your works of creation and providence, not merely to notice them, not merely to notice the beauty and the grandeur, not merely to be grateful, but to go even further and, and to draw a, a straight line to you and to your splendor and to your majesty and to your glory. Lord, may we worship you. May we May we bless you, O Lord, with all of our hearts and souls. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.